Well, good morning. My name is uh, Bud Brainerd. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Lake Forest Davidson. Glad to have you with us today. It doesn't matter where you are in your relationship with Christ, whether you're cautious or curious or fully committed, this is a safe place for you to learn to grow and to change. As long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in. As we meet together in these circles, we are reminded that uh, there's always something at the center of our life. Uh, some person, some thing, some idea that's at the center around which the rest of our life kind of rotates in circles. Jesus Christ would love to be that place in your life. He would love to be at the center of your life. And if you ever put him there, you'll find that you'll have abundant life on earth as well as everlasting life after the earth. So today we're going to continue our sermon series entitled, uh, Follow Me. Jesus invites us to leave behind the life that we know uh, in order to live a life with him at the center. Or to put it in shorthand, Jesus' invitation to follow him is simply an invitation to become a Christian. So it begs the question, what is a Christian? Well, the first thing we know is that a Christian is someone who is called. Now, being called is something that we are all intimately uh, familiar with. I mean, we have those little phones that we carry around, right? And, and those things ring all the time. Uh, I get lots and lots of what they call robo-calls. Uh, those are calls from companies and people that, that I don't know and that I don't really want to know. And every one of those calls is, what are they trying to do? They're trying to sell me something, right? I hate those calls. When God calls, God is not trying to sell you something. He is trying to give you something. He's trying to give you a new life, a better life, an eternal life. And in case you were wondering, God has your number. He knows your number. When he calls, all you need to do is answer. Becoming a Christian is not something that we initiate. It's something that we respond to. God calls and we respond. And that's exactly what we see in our text for this morning from Matthew chapter 9. The first verse says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, the first thing that we notice here is that Jesus shows up at this guy's office. He goes to his place of employment. He goes to the tax booth where Matthew is a tax collector. Ma tax collectors are sometimes in the New Testament called publicans. Now, being a tax collector was a, was a, a very lucrative job. You could get you could get stinking rich being a tax collector. And it was also a prestigious job because you were appointed by the Roman government to collect taxes for them. So that's all the good news about being a tax collector. There's also some bad news. The bad news is you don't have any friends, right? I mean, anybody in here like paying taxes? No, no. So if you're a tax collector, you're really not going to have a whole lot of friends. And that was made even worse because the tax collectors, the way they made their money is they charged people the tax that was due to Rome, and then they would add on either a little or a lot that would simply go into their pocket. 
And so tax collectors are not very popular in, uh, in Jesus' time. Uh, they don't have very many friends. Jesus shows up at this guy's office and he says to him, follow me. And it's an invitation to a relationship into a different way of life. Jesus invites Matthew and he invites us to follow him, to have a living and vibrant relationship with him and out of that relationship to live a life that is different. But how is it different? What changes when we follow Jesus? Well, this new life in Christ is more about principles than about patterns. Now, when I think of the word pattern, I go all the way back to when I was, was a, an early teenager and I worked in my, our family business. We had a manufacturing company and we had a machine shop where we, where we, where we worked on, on stuff and made stuff. And in that machine shop, we used patterns all the time. We use them in metalworking, we use them in woodworking, and the whole purpose of having a pattern is that you could make the same piece over and over and over again. You would replicate the original, and, and all the pieces would look exactly the same. For those of you who don't, uh, haven't spent much time in a machine shop, maybe, uh, maybe a tailor or a seamstress is another way to think about this. They have a pattern, and the pattern enables them to make the same piece over and over and over again. Now, religious people, like the Pharisees, they really loved the law and rules. Because with the law and the rules that accompany them, uh, they felt like that would really help people live patterned lives. Like everybody would kind of look, look and behave the same way. The only problem with that is that it, it never works. It doesn't work with human beings. It works fine with metal and with wood and with cloth, but it doesn't work well with people. Here's what I mean. No two disciples in Scripture nor in human history have ever lived their lives in identical ways. Our circumstances, our challenges, our opportunities, all of those are different for each one of us. And because of that, how we respond to God how we engage the world, how we serve and follow Christ is going to look different. So, with that being said, it doesn't do any good for you to cheat. You're going to have to do your own work. You can't look at your neighbor's life. You can't look at your pastor's life. You can't look at your Sunday school teacher's life and say, if I'm a Christian, that's what my life is supposed to look like. Because it just doesn't work that way. Trying to do what the next person does doesn't work. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, Paul, he writes this letter to Corinth and he tells them, imitate me. But Paul is not trying to get them to do exactly what he does, where he does it, and with the people he does it with. What Paul is trying to do is to help them identify the principles, not the patterns, the principles that guide his life as he follows Christ. The invitation to follow Jesus is always about principles, not patterns. Now, I hope that that frees you up a little bit because your life is not supposed to look like my life, nor is my life supposed to look like yours. Your life is not supposed to look like your parents' or your children's or anybody else's. 
your life as you follow Christ is going to be unique to you. Unique to you. Well, Jesus calls us to follow him, not to follow anybody else. But it begs the question, how do you know that you're called? I get this question a lot as a pastor. How do I know that I am called? Well, the first disciples had this really big advantage that we don't have. So what happened to the first disciples is Jesus would come up to somebody and he would say, hey, my name's Jesus, follow me. Right? That's pretty direct. It's It's hard to get confused about that, right? You know that you've been called by Jesus when that happens. But that doesn't happen to us. So the way God calls us, the way we know that we are called today is through the Word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, he says this. He says, He is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So it happens in different ways for different people. Your calling will not be the same as my calling. If you think about the way Paul was called, Paul's life was headed in this direction. He was persecuting the church, doing everything he thought was right, keeping all the rules, following the patterns. And after his encounter with Jesus, his life goes in an entirely different direction. It was a dramatic change. When he writes to Timothy, who is one of his traveling partners and who ended up being the pastor in the church in Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted, when he writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the faith that I see in you is the same faith that we saw in your mother Eunice and your Mimaw Lois. Yes, Timothy had a Mimaw. So what he is saying, if, if somebody come up to Timothy and said, Timothy, tell me about your dramatic conversion experience, Timothy would say, well, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I don't remember a time when I didn't experience the love of Christ. I don't remember a time when I, when I ever questioned about whether God loved me. I don't remember a time when I wasn't in love with Jesus. So our call comes to us in different ways. There is not one pattern for a call. There is simply the principle that we are called. So back to the question, how do you know that you're called? Well, there there is evidence that you've been called. And the evidence oftentimes is that our priorities change. We begin to think less about ourselves and more about others. But we have to be really clear here. Thinking less about ourselves (coughs) is not the same as thinking less about of ourselves. You get that? Thinking less about ourselves is not the same thing as thinking less of ourselves. Religious people get this backwards all the time. All the time. Religion consists uh, in, insists that keeping the rules is what makes you a Christian. If you just follow these patterns, then, then you're a Christian. Now the problem with that is that if you don't follow the pattern, what happens? You begin to question whether or not you are a Christian, whether or not you are following Christ. Here's the bad news. None of us follow the pattern perfectly. We are all, each one of us, going to fall short. We are going to fail as we inevitably do. And the more often we fail, the l- we think less and less of ourselves. 
We can even get to the point where the psalmist got at one point. The psalmist in one of his psalms, David writes, he said, I am a worm and not a man. Folks, you are not worms. You matter. You matter to God because you are created in His own image. You matter to God. So Jesus calls Matthew and He says, follow me. And afterwards, they go to Matt's house for dinner. Now, I don't know if Matt had a hairdo like our Matt. He may have, he may not have. We don't have any pictures. But they go to Matt's house for dinner, and here is where the story gets really interesting. Because here is when we see in stark relief the difference between a life of religion and a life of following Jesus. Here's what it says in verses 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I bet you're thinking, I bet there's, I bet there's something behind this question. Maybe, maybe they're challenging Jesus. Maybe they're accusing Jesus. Maybe it's just a criticism. But in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the very first time that the Pharisees make any comment whatsoever about Jesus. And they ask this simple question, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And so I'm going to ask us to do what's really hard for us to do because we know the whole story. But I'm going to ask for us to just take a step back and let's give the Pharisees, just for a minute, the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they have a concern for this young rabbi named Jesus. Maybe they are warning Jesus about contamination. Now, if you were a Pharisee in the world, the world would be really pretty simple. I mean, you would view yourself as wearing one of these big hazmat suits. Do we have a hazmat suit up here? Yeah. Big hazmat suit, right? It keeps the germs away from you. And that's the way you kind of go through life. The rest of the world is like pig pen. And so, because it's like pig pen, you have to have that hazmat suit on. You can't, you can't become contaminated. <coughs> Contamination happens by way of proximity. If you get close to, to something that's, that's going to contaminate you, you're going to get contaminated. This spring in the United States, we, we had a, a, a big deal happen. It was the measles outbreak. Remember that? Measles is a virus. And when you get the measles virus, you get a systemic infection. And it can have, it can have real complications. In some rare cases, it can lead to death. And the way it works, you know, they told everybody, they would close schools, right? Uh, if you were on an airplane and somebody had measles, I mean, everybody had to, had to be quarantined. It was a really big deal because if I'm healthy and you're infected and I come into proximity with you, what's going to happen? I'm going to get infected, right? That's the way it works biologically. It has always worked that way biologically. 
religious people think that contamination works the same way morally and spiritually. Healthy people become unhealthy if they are around unhealthy people. Pure and clean people become unclean if they get around unclean people. Righteous people become unrighteous if they get around unrighteous people. And that's why the Pharisees are raising this objection. That's why they they said, why is it that he eats with sinners and tax collectors? According to their laws, Jesus was going to become contaminated. He was going to become defiled, if you will, by eating with those dirty sinners and tax collectors. He was going to be corrupted. Now, when you stop and think about it, they had a point. They really did have a point. They understood the power of community for character formation. They were laser-focused on the patterns of people's lives. And they could spot sin a thousand yards away. The only problem was they couldn't spot sin in their own backyard. And so the Pharisees are struggling over this. What they did know was that Jewish dietary laws made it impossible. It was a big no-no, if you that's how we say it theologically. This is a big no-no if you eat with pagans or with Gentiles. But here Jesus comes along. He ignores the clean, unclean laws. And why does he do that? Because Jesus lives by this principle. Gospel trumps law every time. Gospel trumps law every time. Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So religious people were afraid that being around people who were unclean would make them unclean. They feared contact with those kind of people people. It was kind of a, we don't want to get involved in guilt by association. You've probably heard that, maybe from your parents. Uh, Guilty by association. They were metaphorically wearing rubber gloves and surgical masks, and they avoided contact with those people to avoid contamination. Jesus is just the opposite. He is the exact opposite of that. Jesus was drawn to people who were spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, morally, and physically sick. He knew they were angry. He knew they were guilty. He knew they were scared and anxious and and divided and rejected. But Jesus is the great physician. So Jesus is not afraid to enter the room to treat the wounded. Jesus dives right into their midst. This whole episode in Matthew 9 is made clearer by an episode that took place just the chapter before in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, Jesus is approached by a leper. Now, we have to say it like that, a leper. Because uh, leprosy was considered to be uh, a judgment by God on somebody who wasn't living according to the rules. And lepers, it was illegal to touch a, a leper. Lepers had to be quarantined in their own communities so that they couldn't, you couldn't be around them because if you got around them, you could catch leprosy. It was a contagious disease. And this leper comes to Jesus and falls at his feet 
and asked to be made whole. Now, the leper knows, the reason he did that, he knows that Jesus has the power to do this. And Jesus could have been like um, Jean-Luc Picard. He could have just said, make it so, and it would be so. Or he could have been like, uh, like a Jedi knight, and he could have said, the leprosy is not in this one. I mean, he could have done either one of those, right? I mean, God knows the beginning from the end, so even though the movies weren't out, he probably could make those references. But what does Jesus do? Jesus breaks the law. Jesus touches the leper and makes him clean. Proximity. Jesus does the unthinkable. Flesh upon flesh. God incarnate. And the leper is healed. This is a new way. Throughout all of history, when the infected comes into contact with the healthy, the healthy become infected. When the unclean comes into proximity of the clean, the clean becomes unclean. All of religion is based on this principle. Stay away from the defiled, the immoral, the unclean. In other words, the disease is greater than the cure. When you boil it down to its essence, isn't this really the heart of the matter? If we believe that the disease of sin is greater than the cure for sin... We should at all costs do our level best to avoid contamination. But if we are honest, where can we really go from the effects of sin? If we put on our hazmat suit, and if we don't want to get around those people, and maybe we think everybody is in that category of those people, it's just me who's, who's righteous. The very fact of isolating myself from others is in itself a sin. It is a violation of the way that God has created us to be. Jesus comes and shows the world that nothing can make him unclean and anything and anyone he touches, anyone he connects with, no matter how defiled that they think they are, no matter what their record, no matter what they have done, no matter what has been done to them, no matter how guilty they are or feel, Jesus can make them clean instantly. This is what C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, calls the good infection. Lewis said, if you're cold and you want to get warm, you have to get close to the fire. If you want to get wet, you've got to get in the water. If you want joy and peace and forgiveness, you've got to get in close proximity to Jesus because he is the source of all of those things. Now can you see why Jesus says, follow me? Jesus comes and says, I'm not just another religious ruler telling you to obey the rules so that you can make yourself fit for God. 
I will make you fit for God. I am cleanliness. I am righteousness. I am healing and wholeness. I am forgiveness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God's grace is greater than all our sins. And when we come into contact with Jesus, who is the great physician, infection begins to work in reverse. This is the real miracle. When we come into contact with Jesus, Jesus, who is clean, comes into contact with us, we who are unclean, and we become clean. Jesus, who is righteous, when we come into contact with with him and we are unrighteous, we become righteous. Infection gets turned on its head because the cure is greater than the disease. That's why coming into contact with Jesus completely changes the way we see ourselves. We see the world. It's the opposite of religion. Listen to how Eugene Peterson translates Matthew eleven twenty-eight. These are Jesus' words. Are you tired? Anybody in here tired? I'm tired. Our third service. Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. One final important note. The tax collectors and sinners ate with Jesus. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners. But do you know who else was there? It said Jesus and his disciples ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. It's not just Jesus, it's his disciples too, and that's us. That's you and that's me. And now again, Jesus tells his disciples the principles to live by, the last verse. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sacrifices are what we do in order to earn God's favor. Truth be told, sacrifices are what we do so that other people will like us. Because we all want to be liked, right? We all want to be approved. We all want to be accepted. And so we'll make sacrifices to make that happen. The problem is that God doesn't care about your sacrifices. God does not care about your sacrifices. Why? Because he has already provided all the sacrifice you'll ever need. God sent his own son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. So God 
doesn't care about your sacrifices. What God cares about is mercy. We don't need sacrifice. We need mercy. Mercy is not about what we can do to make ourselves acceptable and loved by God. Mercy is about what God gives to us. So when God calls, he's not trying to sell you something. He's trying to give you something. He's trying to give you a new life. A life with purpose and meaning. A better life. An eternal life. This is the gospel. But where do we get the power to live like that? Well, it's contagious. It's contagious. You need to risk contamination by drawing near to Jesus. We need what he's got. We need a really good infection in order to become merciful. And finally, Jesus turns to where he began when he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's that call thing again. Now maybe you've heard that call in the past and you've already responded to it. Maybe you've heard the call this morning and you want to respond to it. Maybe you haven't heard the call yet. That's okay. God will not stop calling until you answer. Jesus may show up at your place of employment tomorrow. I pray that whenever he shows up and calls that you'll listen. Listen with your heart. Because that's what Jesus really wants to change. He wants to change our hearts. And he has the ability to do that. He wants to heal our hearts. He's not angry with you. In fact, he would love to sit and have a meal with you. There's plenty of room at the table for tax collectors and sinners and maybe even a few disciples. There's mercy at the table. There is forgiveness at the table. There is hope at the table. There is laughter at the table. And there is freedom at the table. No matter what your record is, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how ashamed or guilty you feel, Jesus is the cure that is greater than all our sin. Can you hear him calling you? He simply says, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, there is mystery in all of this. But that's because you were at the center. And Lord, some of us have heard and responded to your call and we're living our life in a unique way as we follow you. And you've set us free. Others this morning, Lord, are still listening. 
I pray that they would hear your voice. I pray that you would say, follow me. And then you would welcome them home. In Jesus' name.